What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Well, this was awkward. Um, This happened in a public men's room uh, recently. I love it when stories start that way. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Here's the thing. There are some unwritten rules of etiquette when it comes to using a public men's room. Oh, I know one. If they're is an opportunity to not stand directly next to another person peeing, you don't. Yeah, absolutely. Go to the farthest away that you can if, if there's a person in there using one of the urinals. Oh, I know another one. Yeah. Don't make eye contact. Never make eye contact. Um, that's important. Also, uh, if you are forced to stand next to another man, don't introduce yourself. That's just awkward but now i can add a new i witnessed this i'm in there standing doing my business and the door flies open Mm -hmm. and a guy comes running in obviously he had to go badly uh he was he was holding his wiener as he's coming through the door i see yeah and that made me uncomfortable sure sure I can see how that would be. I've never seen that before. Right. I doubt that that's an Ecuadorian culture thing. Right. It's just that guy. Just that guy. But uh, boy, did I, I really increased the pressure of my stream to, to get out of there as quickly as possible. Sure. I didn't know what to expect. At least he didn't then make eye contact and introduce himself. Yeah. I offered to shake my hand. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So let that be a lesson to you people. Don't walk around public spaces with wiener in hand. Yeah, holding your genitals. That's just bad form. Sure. I don't care what country you're in. Now, you were saying before we started recording that your your topic is pretty dark. Yeah. And pretty intense. And so you you think you should go first. I would like that if that's okay okay with you. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I think it would be good to not necessarily get this out of the way, but it is really heavy. And I guess this is also a content warning because it is dark mm. and really hard to listen to. Okay. Yeah. All right. I've uh, prepared my pork taint. Anna Elizabeth, also known as Annalisa Michel, was born on September 21st, 1952 in Bavaria, West Germany. She grew up in a devoutly Catholic family. They attended mass twice a week. The father, who was a sawmill operator named Joseph, had once considered becoming a priest, and there were several nuns in their family. In 1948, before Annalisa was born, her mother gave birth to Martha, an illegitimate daughter, which brought immense disgrace upon their family. And that that shame was so profound that when Joseph... And Mother Anna did get married. Anna wore a black veil to express her shame. It was a symbol of their tarnished reputation. So when Annalisa was born in 1952, her mother sought to find redemption for the sins of illegitimacy through fervent devotion. 
Consequently, much of the girls' time was spent indoors. Instead of playing outside with the other kids, they would be inside praying. Tragically, Martha's life was cut short at the age of eight due to complications from a kidney tumor operation. And this loss intensified the pressure on young Annalisa to carry the heavier burden of repentance. She was subjected to measures including being made to sleep on a stone floor to atone not only for her sins, but also for the perceived transgressions of others. Wow. She was responsible for atoning for the illegitimacy of her sister's birth. Hmm. That doesn't seem fair somehow. Yeah. This weight of responsibility added anxiety to Annalisa, and she had a profound desire to rid the world of sin that she believed she bore the responsibility for. As she entered her teenage years, Anna was described as a kind and sensitive individual, but fervently religious, and she started experiencing various health issues, both physical and psychological. Annalise began suffering from seizures and was diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy, a condition that causes abnormal electrical activity in the brain. At the age of 16, she had a sudden blackout while at school, and that left her friends and teachers bewildered. She was in this trance-like state, just wandering around. Like catatonic. Kind of. She had no recollection of the incident, but shortly after, a similar episode occurred at home. Following these episodes, Anna was diagnosed and she began experiencing bouts of depression. In 1970, her family and doctors made the decision to admit her to a psychiatric hospital in hopes of finding effective treatment. But unfortunately, despite being prescribed numerous medications, her condition showed no signs of improvement. Instead, her epilepsy and her depression continued to worsen. Over time, the temporal lobe epilepsy she suffered from began to manifest as psychosis, further complicating her mental health situation. As her symptoms persisted, Annalisa and her family began to believe that her affliction might be more than a medical condition. They started suspecting that she was possessed by demonic forces. Oh, no. If you've started to recognize this story, mm -hmm. it's probably because, A, it's terrible, and B, a movie was based off of these events. This is the story of the girl the horror movie The Exorcism of Emily Rose is based on. But the movie is not nearly as horrific as what actually happened. Really? Usually it's the other way around. Yeah. As Annalise's condition continued to deteriorate, she began experiencing intense convulsions that would cause her body to shake uncontrollably. And this was just further proof to her family that she was possessed by mm. a demonic entity. Along with the physical symptoms, Annalise's mental state started to worsen. She developed a severe aversion to Christian symbols and reported seeing demonic faces and hearing the voices of demons. During her prayers, she started experiencing hallucinations, followed by deep depressions and thoughts of ending her life, fueled by voices in her head, which insisted that she was damned. 
this is just awful. It is. And as time went on, the distressing manifestations escalated even further. Annalisa started to engage in extreme religious practices, performing around 600 genuflections a day. Mm. This caused damage to her knee ligaments, and she started exhibiting bizarre behaviors like barking like a dog while hiding under the kitchen table. Yeah, that's alarming Yeah, um, in many ways. I can't imagine walking into a room and, and witnessing something like that. Yeah let alone experiencing it. Annalisa would scream relentlessly for hours on end. She was seen ingesting spiders and biting the head off a dead bird. Wow. Her family was at a loss. This combined with Annalisa insisting that she was possessed by demons led them to believe they needed to find a solution outside of medicine. Annalise and her family insisted on exorcism. After two unsuccessful requests, a third request was granted and authorized by Bishop Joseph Stengel. So in 1975, Annalisa stopped receiving medical treatment, and her family chose to go solely with a series of exorcisms performed by two Catholic priests. These exorcisms were authorized by the local bishop. They started performing the exorcisms four-hour sessions once or twice a week held secretly in the bedroom of her parents' house. Annalisa was often in need of restraining, either by holding her down or chaining her to a chair. The priests claimed they identified several demons, including Lucifer himself and Adolf Hitler, who spoke with an Austrian accent. What year was was this? She was born in 52? This was 1975. 75, okay. Annalise would frequently express her belief in the need to die as a means of atoning for the moral decline of contemporary youth and the perceived failure of modern priests within the church. She actively engaged with the exorcists, responding to their inquiries and offering explanations about the state of the church and reasons why certain people were condemned to hell. These encounters were captured on video recordings. Prepare yourself. Du musst jetzt alles sagen. Und zwar, dass die Dinge, äh, die Embryos, nicht zu anschauen, Gottes Gelang. So, ne. Sage die Wahrheit. Ja! Yeah, I don't like any of this. No, these recordings documented the chilling conversations that happened during the course of the 67 exorcism sessions that took place over approximately 10 months in 1975 and 1976. In the spring of 76, Annalise's health rapidly declined as she battled pneumonia and severe malnourishment. Despite her worsening physical condition, she adamantly refused to eat, which of course exacerbated her mm. deterioration. She was covered in bruises and developed bed sores. She experienced hair loss and was wasting away to under 70 pounds. The bruising, was that uh, self-inflicted or was it just a uh, symptom of her malnutrition? Or It was a combination of those things, plus the fact that she was being restrained for oh, yeah. these 
exorcisms. Yeah, yeah. Chaining one to a chair can cause some bruising. Yeah. Eventually, weakened and exhausted, she succumbed to fever and passed away on July 1st, 1976, at the age of 23. The case of Annalisa McHale gained significant attention and controversy, as you can imagine. It led to legal proceedings against her parents and the priests involved Mm. in the exorcisms. Following these tragic events, the two priests and Anna and Joseph faced charges of negligent homicide. The trial commenced on March 30th, 1978, where some of these recordings were played for a three-judge panel. The defense wanted to highlight Annalise's belief in possession, and they thought that that portion of the events, the fact that she was insisting she was possessed, Mm. was their defense. But the prosecution argued that her death could be attributed to epilepsy, mental disorders, and the intense religious upbringing that she Mm. had endured. And that whether or not she believed she was possessed, it was up to those who are caring for her to seek medical treatment. Professor Hans Sates from Würzburg University referred to it as a spiritual sickness and heavy psychic disturbance. The trial became a clash between faith and factual evidence, with the latter prevailing. The four individuals were found guilty, but received lenient sentences, having already served time in custody along with three months probation. But the trial sparked debates across the nation about the intersection of faith and mental illness and legal responsibility. Annalise's burial took place at the outskirts of the local cemetery, typically reserved for individuals considered outside societal norms. Oh, so... It wasn't even consecrated ground? No, she was buried next to her sister, who was illegitimate. Okay. In February of that year, the parents decided to have their daughter's body exhumed from its resting place, driven by a local nun's claim that she had a vision indicating that the body remained intact, and that would serve as evidence that she had been possessed. Authorities reported that the exhumation revealed typical signs of body decay, refuting the notion of supernatural preservation. During the court proceedings, both priests maintained their belief that this woman had been possessed and that her death had ultimately liberated her. Similarly, her parents held on to their conviction that their daughter had been possessed, although they did not believe that she had been freed. When Annalise's mother was asked about the months-long exorcism that led to her daughter's death, Anna said, I don't regret it. There was no other way. Well, you're right about this being a tough one because there's there's no happy ending for anyone. Nope. It is important to note that although the exorcism of Emily Rose is loosely based on this story, it did, of course, take creative liberties and fictionalized certain elements of the story for dramatic purposes. So it's not the story of Annalise, but it is based on the story of Annalise. And I think it's important to remember her story for a lot of reasons. I think once you hear the story, it's going to be pretty hard to forget. Yeah. I got my information from The Telegraph, Collider.com, All That's Interesting, SlashFilm.com, and The Washington Post. And now, that thing in the middle. Today's thing in the middle, five creepy things found in attics. Stuff that people found rummaging around in their attic. 
Just the thought of that creeps me out. But not as much as finding a three-foot African ball python in the attic, alive, just hanging out. Hey, what's up? That would cause me to fudge my linens. Number four. Recently, a woman from Moscow discovered Hitler's personal music collection tucked away in her father's attic. Let me guess, the complete Nickelback catalog. (laughs) Interestingly, the collection shows he secretly listened to Russian and Jewish composers, Uh loved Rachmaninoff, Tchaikovsky, and Richard Wagner. How about this? You're a real estate agent and you're showing a house to someone and you go up into the attic and in the attic on the wall in very childish handwriting in crayon, a message that says, did I scare you? Yeah, no, that would be enough for me to not move there. Knowing Mm -hmm. that children had been there. No, thank you. Number two, a 10-year-old in Germany rummaging around some suspicious-looking boxes in his grandparents' attic found a mummy, carefully packed in a wooden crate, placed inside a sarcophagus. Neither grandma or grandpa knew how it got there. How about this one? You're moving your Christmas decorations, let's say, up to the attic, and you're rummaging around and moving some things around, and you find, oh, a human skull, but that's not the end of it. With the aid of computers and forensics, it was determined that it was the head of King Henry VI. (laughs) I need to find the backstory to that one. Longtime listener, first-time caller, Jason here, with a caveat to your list of movie sets that you can go and visit. Since none of Bill Murray's major list, I would like to let you know that now the list can be completed properly. Woodstock, Illinois Town Square is the location of about 80% of Groundhog's Day. That's where it was filmed for the most part. It is as picturesque as the movie makes it out to be. Now, that's not a horror film. And that was what you were talking about, right? Visiting horror film sets. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. But whatevs, yo. Podcasty113 commented on Instagram, I am the property manager of a wedding venue. And this morning, as I was resetting from last night's wedding, I found little rubber pieces on the ground. It was until I found a large chunk of the sole that I realized it was bits of someone's shoe, which had apparently fallen apart throughout the evening. I had a good chuckle thinking about JG. <laughs> yeah, that was it was so bizarre. I, th- I guess my shoes had seen better days. I Yeah, because you didn't buy new shoes I for buy, our wedding. No, no, that would no. be silly. Um, but I'd only worn them a couple of times. Mm-hmm. But it got so hot in that venue. That your shoes just crumbled to bits. They did. I just danced my way barefoot. Yep. Also, they continue. I was listening to the episode about giant ocean creatures this morning. And between Kat's isopod voice and the I'm coming for your dick giant crab comment, I laughed the whole way to work. (laughs) At our very first live show in Nashville, somebody brought... uh, needlepoint of a crab saying i'm coming for your dick beautiful we still have it it's in storage in florida i can't wait to see it again i also can't wait for live shows again yes and some exciting news about that in the not too distant future just know it's in the works so here's something interesting that thing in the middle you just heard was actually oops pizza's here finish this liner by yourself i'm a hungry curator This is The Box of Oddities. 
Well, it's Halloween season, and that conjures up visions of whispers in the middle of the night or full moon's curses or primal howls echoing through the woods. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a Halloween season thing. It is. Yeah. And for centuries, sure. centuries, um, this imagery has fueled our collective imaginations with stories of werewolves. Mm. One of my favorite movies of all time is about werewolves. Please continue. What was the name of it? Wolf. <laughs> Starring James Spader and Jack Nicholson. Okay. All right. Well, these mythical creatures cursed to transform and terrorize are deeply seated in our folklore. Yet, when we look back in time through modern eyes today, a more chilling theory starts to emerge. Beneath the tales of fur and fang, the line between mythical werewolves and real flesh and blood serial killers becomes eerily blurred. Also, Michelle Pfeiffer was in Wolf and it was like peak Michelle Pfeiffer white gold time. And I just love her. Could it be that some of the most mo notorious werewolves of lore were, in fact, men consumed not by some sort of curse of the moon, but by... A very human darkness. Is there a connection between some of these legendary uh, werewolf stories mm. and some of history's most infamous murderers? Well, we do know that human behavior is affected by the full moon. Well, that's true. The gravity. Ask any emergency room nurse. Oh, they'll tell you. And the theory is that uh, there's a gravitational pull on the fluid in your brain or, or something like that. Yeah. Well, we were watching something the other day that was describing how the tides work. Yeah. And it's totally different than I had pictured my whole life about how the moon affects the tides. Yeah. It doesn't. I had the same reaction because you, you know, the, the tide comes in, the tide goes out. Yeah. No big deal. Yeah. It's the ocean menses. What's happening is the gravity of the moon is actually pulling the water away from the earth. It's bulging in the middle when it's low tide. That's wild. Anyway. Yeah. Lichens. Get back to it. We've all heard about the infamous witch trials where fear and paranoia led to countless accusations and trials and tragically executions. Mm. But... Throughout history, another set of trials took place right alongside the witches. There were those accused of being werewolves. And this is between the 15th and 18th century in Europe. They found themselves gripped in a lycanthropic panic. Unlike witchcraft, often associated with cunning women and magical misdeeds, lycanthropy claims had a darker, bloodier undertone. Those accused of being werewolves were often believed to have physically transformed into wolves, preying on the community, uh, committing brutal murders, and even indulging in cannibalistic acts. And there are a couple of cases that uh, have been researched where people think that uh, the accused werewolf didn't transform into a wolf necessarily, but was in fact a serial killer. Interesting. Peter Stump's tale straight out of uh, the 16th century in Germany is enough to give anybody the creeps. Uh, he was accused of witchcraft, cannibalism, and being a werewolf. He had like the, the evil trifecta. Stump confessed to have devoured countless victims 
in his wolf form. But if you strip away all of the supernatural elements of his story, Mm -hmm. he... He was just a murderer? It does fit our modern profile of a serial killer. Yes. I think that story upset Haggis. He crawled up into Cat's lap. Now let's move to France. I thought you'd never ask. (laughs) Uh, There was a guy that lived there. His name was Gilles Garnier. And he was a hermit. He was uh, labeled the werewolf of Dole. He lived on the fringes of society. Garnier's crimes were unearthed when children began disappearing. When he was captured and interrogated, he confessed to murdering and eating them. Yeah, I really thought that my story was going to be heavy. Yeah, yeah. He, uh... He justified his actions by claiming a specter had given him a magical ointment that enabled him to transform into a wolf. Again, his actions were more serial killer-ish. So he does kind of fit that profile. And it does seem possible that some of these accused of being werewolves may have in fact been serial killers. Some, but not all. Like the case of Jean Grenier, again in France, Slightly different. It takes a bit of a twist. In the 17th century, this young Frenchman openly boasted about his werewolf escapades. He was hauled into trial. Grenier's stories of his werewolf pack and their cannibalistic hunts seemed too wild to be true. And since there were no bodies or evidence of what he said he had done... Instead of execution, he was deemed mentally ill and sentenced to live the rest of his life in a monastery. His behavior, his disassociation from reality, and the tales that he spun suggest... Ergot. It's probably ergot. Ergot or maybe some sort of psychological issues. And that brings us to the present. We find ourselves in an era of scientific discovery, technological advances, and a deeper understanding of the human psyche. Yet amidst all of this, the echoes from those ancient tales of transformation persist in the phenomenon of clinical lycanthropy. Clinical lycanthropy is a rare psychiatric condition where individuals are under the genuine delusion that they can transform into animals. Contrary to popular belief, it's not just about turning into wolves. There have been cases where people believe that they become cats. Mm. Cows, birds, even mythical creatures like dragons. The manifestation of this condition is profound, with patients sometimes mimicking the behavior of the animals that they believe they've transformed into, whether it's howling or or crawling or flapping their arms and wings. So my question is now, if these people had never been exposed to the concept of lycanthropy, mm-hmm. And they didn't know about animals. You know, you just kept them in a box. Right. Skinner style. Yeah. How would that manifest? It's a great question. Thank you. Let's get some babies. Put them in boxes. I got questions. There was, those were some weird times in science, weren't they? So what underlies this condition? When you look into the realms of uh, neuropsychiatry, clinical lycanthropy is often linked to abnormalities or dysfunctions in the part of the brain that recognizes body shape, particularly in the right lobe. Oh, like alien hand syndrome. 
Yeah, very similar. Just manifests in a different way. This disruption in body image can lead to altered perceptions of oneself. Moreover, the condition has often been diagnosed in tandem with other mental uh, health disorders such mm -hmm. as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and severe depression. Now, you might draw parallels between these modern diagnoses and historical accounts of werewolves. You consider, for instance, the example that I gave you of uh, Jean Grenier and all of the wild tales that he spun in the 1600s. Seen through the lens of today's clinical lycanthropy, really paints a picture of a boy grappling with psychological disturbances more mm. so than uh, some sort of mystical lunar curse. Right. True, there are indeed a few clear examples of people labeled werewolves who were very likely serial killers, especially in the 16th and 17th century Europe. But for the majority, probably not the case. Again, it's a question of superstition versus mental health. Yep. Interesting how both of our stories kind of uh, mm. tapped into that. It's very likely that those who were labeled werewolves were actually individuals affected with this condition. It was misunderstood. They were maligned due to the limited medical knowledge of the times. Perhaps many were simply just tormented souls. They weren't werewolves. They were just tormented souls trying to get by in a world that labeled them as monsters. But some of them were serial killers. Yeah, well, yeah, sure. My source information, a lycanthropy reader. Werewolves in Western Culture, Charlotte Otten. The Essential Guide to Werewolf Literature, J. Brian Frost, The Beast Within by Adam Douglas, and A Dictionary of Hallucinations by Jan Dirk. I'd like to thank our special guest, the Rufus Collard Sparrow, who has joined us this can episode. You, can you hear him in the background? Cat has turned our, our balcony into like uh, a giant birdhouse. She's created a little nest out there for birds. Uh, the floor is covered with fruit and vegetables and bird seed. She is the bird woman of Ecuador. The bird food is contained. I put it in a box. Yeah, they kick it all over the place. It's so cute. <laughs> At least they're not Africanized bees. Did we talk about the tarantula, by the way? No. I found a tarantula. Yeah, she did. She didn't bring him home, thankfully. She, oh my gosh. This baby was so fluffy and I just, you know... Next time. Well, you do have a terrarium now. That's true. With a Venus flytrap in it. Named Jeff. We love hanging out with you guys. Thank you for your time. We look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.